morning. Ohayo gozaimasu. Greetings to those who are also streaming. All right, so for those of you who don't know me, I'm Perry Penley. Um, I've been attending here for almost two years now, and I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning. We'll be continuing in the book of James in a message that I've entitled, Faith Put to the Test. So if you would, make your way to the book of James, and we'll be starting in chapter 2. Uh, please stand with me to honor God as his, and his word. Starting in verse 14 and reading through verse 20. What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Please pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning, this opportunity just to gather in fellowship, and communion, and to just open up your word. Pray that your Holy Spirit is the teacher and preacher this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So for those of you who have been with us for the last two weeks, we had two guest preachers who's, who's worked through the book of James, the first uh, couple of verses, and I'm going to follow suit here and continue in the book of James. So shockingly, the book of James is written by James. Uh, he was the half-brother of Jesus, also called James the Just or James the Righteous. Uh, myth has it that uh, he was also called Camel Knees based on the calluses on his knees from the amount of time that he spent in prayer. He was a central figure in the early church. He was part of the Council of Jerusalem that's recorded in Acts 15 that reconciled the Jewish and non-Jewish believers in the early church. And it is different than the majority of the New Testament. The majority of the New Testament is an invitation to receive salvation and indication on how to receive salvation. The book of James and 1 John, they're primarily a book of proofs or tests or verifications of salvation. A couple of years ago, I was in Bahrain and I went to the souk or the marketplace and there, many people will be hawking their wares, calling out. And I heard a lot of people saying, genuine fake, best fake. Uh, talking about Rolexes or you know watches or other products or handbags, things that look real but aren't real. So that's the best fake. That's what James focuses on, just identifying how do we find out if this is the real thing. So also in that same country, they sell a lot of gold to the people from Saudi Arabia who come across the causeway. And you can tell if something is pure gold, you have to turn it over. And one of the ministries of government has stamped it, etched it in, in that gold, indicating this is 100% pure gold. And that's what these proofs in the book of James indicate for us. Is our faith genuine? So that's why it's called faith put to the test. 
So what do these do for us as we read through the book of James? So first of all, it's conviction for the non-believer. Someone who doesn't know Christ should be and will be convicted by these statements because these are not true of the world. It's correction or reproof for the believer who is out of fellowship or out of God's will. And it's encouragement for the believer who is living in God's will. Because we can look down the quarters of time to our past and say, you know, six years ago when I became a believer, or ten years ago, or six months ago when I became a believer, these things were not as true about me as they are today. And they will be even more true about me six years, ten years, a lifetime from now as we live and grow in sanctification. It also has strong parallels with Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So the section of Scripture that we just read in chapter 2 is the central theme of James. This concept of intersection with our Christian beliefs and our behavior. And ultimately, spoiler alert, our true beliefs will indicate how we behave. So deep down, what you truly believe will direct your behavior. And we want that belief, those beliefs, to be rooted in God's word, the ultimate truth. So as soon as James indicates this truth, In chapter 2, he immediately launches into an additional proof in verses 14 through 20. So starting in verse 16, we'll talk about that first proof that we're going to talk about today. How do we treat those who are poor or who are unfortunate and in need? But this book was written to combat a heresy in the early church that is still true today, that heresy is libertinism. So in the Jewish religion, as anyone who's read through the Old Testament understands, there's a lot of ritual. There's a lot of symbolic ritual. And all of that was pointed toward Christ, toward the cross, toward the Messiah. And many of them missed it. And many of them turned it into a very legalistic religion. So if you do these things, if you travel to Jerusalem, if you go and you sacrifice in the temple, if you do all of these works, if you tithe your mint and your dill and your spices, then you will receive salvation. That's what they turned it into. When in fact, all of those things were only there to point us to the coming Messiah. And many of them missed it. However, many of those Jewish believers leaving Judaism and turning now to the gospel, they went to the other direction. They went to entering into a heresy called libertinism. So on either side of truth, there is heresy. So you have legalism on one side, and then you have libertinism on the other side. And so what is that? That's a, hey, man, we're under grace. No rules. So, you know, it's a license to sin. Just, hey, enjoy yourself. Eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we're going to die. We've got fire insurance. We're going to heaven. It's all good. That's the concept of libertinism in, you know, Perry's definition right there. So is that true? Is that... Is that okay? You don't have to look too far. Look in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. And uh, I apologize. There's a ton of scripture throughout this. Uh, maybe I shouldn't apologize. There is a ton of scripture uh, throughout this, this sermon. Uh, just try to keep a finger there in James, and most of it will be up on the screen uh, as we go through. So Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Verse 2. May it never be. That word is anathema. It's like, of course not. Absolutely not. 
how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So you have on one side legalism, the other side libertinism. Both of them are equally wrong, equally contrary to the gospel. So you say, well, wait a second, Perry. Is it even possible to have a dead faith? I thought, well, that faith, that's, that's the central aspect of, of, of our belief is faith. And absolutely, but it's possible to have a non-saving faith or a non-saving belief, something that truly hasn't penetrated to the center of your heart and resulted in a changed life and changed behavior. All you have to do is look through the New Testament. The Pharisees believed, you know, using air quotes there, the Pharisees believed John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, but that wasn't salvific. They still went back, you know, breathing out the same murderous threats that they did when they came there. There There's still those whitewashed tombs. Nothing had changed on the inside. And Christ himself gives a, a... a declaration on this situation in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, or in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So this is an individual who had some level of belief, at least has some level of knowledge of Christ, and even did some things that outwardly would look like they are believers. But Christ specifically tells them there will be people like this, and they will have not had a change of their heart. They will not have had that second birth from above, and therefore they will not have been saved because they were living for themselves. They were doing these actions for themselves and their own glory. Even Nicodemus is indicated that he believed when he first came and spoke with Christ. But God specifically told him, you need a new birth. You need a second birth from above. So he was not yet saved. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He doesn't have any second and third order individuals who receive salvation. He only has sons and daughters in his kingdom. And therefore, we have to have that personal relationship with God not just tacit knowledge or book knowledge, academic wisdom about him. So it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and we understand that in Christ alone. But I've heard many preachers say that that faith alone or that faith that saves is never alone and is shown in in works or fruit. We'll look at the parable of the soils just briefly. I won't read through the whole thing, but you can find it in Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 through 23. And for those of you who are familiar with it, it's the sower. It should be called the parable of the sower. The sower is out casting seed on the ground. So that seed is the message or the gospel. And it's the same. The same seed is being thrown on four different types of soil, four different types of heart conditions. So that first soil, that first heart is hard. And the seed doesn't even penetrate and is immediately taken away. No change occurs. Then there are two soils that are somewhat pliable and receive it, and show some outward signs of change, but no fruit at all is produced. That final soil, however, is the only one who receives it and produces fruit as a sign of repentance and a changed life. And that's what James is talking about. These proofs in James are questions about the fruit that the Holy Spirit is working in us as we 
change and become more and more like Christ and less and less like the world. We say, wait a second, Perry, are you saying works are required for salvation? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely not. It's by grace alone through faith alone. All you need to do is look at the thief on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39 through 43. And so Christ is being on the cross. He went willingly to the cross. He wasn't a victim. He was willing to accept all of our sin upon himself so that we might be saved. And then in verse 39, one of the two criminals that were hanging on either side of him said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one answered and rebuked him and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That man was saved. Christ declared it specifically. He had no time for works. He had no time to develop as a Christian. He was saved by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ on the cross alone. Last week, Pastor Joseph reconciled this passage in James that we just read, the central passage of the book of James, with Ephesians 2.8. And they're not in conflict, but they're complementary. They explain both sides of salvation. So in Ephesians, Paul specifically talks about by grace, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And that argument is against legalism. There's nothing that we can do to ever merit or earn salvation. And then in James... This is an indication that true salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, it produces a new creation, a new creature who does new things, different from the world. And this argument is against libertinism, just this concept that we would look the same as the world. We shouldn't look like the world. We should be different. We are a new creature. We should look less and less like the world after salvation. So what does this new creation look like? What does this new creature look like? Well, that's what James is all about. So hopefully you kept your finger in there in James chapter 2. So we'll start back in verse 15 through 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? And so the situation of this brother is dire. Brother or sister is dire. Obviously, they they do not have enough food to eat, and they don't have clothing to keep themselves warm in the evening. And the response of this individual, of this supposed believer, is one of two options. Either the command, warm and clothe yourself, which seems harsh, or the more gentle, the little bit more Christian, Gosh, I hope you can find someone to help you. Neither of these responses are the outgrowth of a heart that has been changed by God. There is no true repentance in this this believer who responds in this way if you have the ability to help this person who has come to you. Because they do not have the heart of God. And how do I know that? Well, because I've read through the Old Testament and I know what God's heart is for those who are poor and those who are needy. And I won't go through all this scripture because we'll be here all afternoon, but 
And no one would want that more than me, I'm sure. But Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all you have to do is read through those, those books and you will know God's heart for the poor. The poor could sacrifice a turtle dove if they couldn't afford a lamb so they could be part of the sacrificial system. They could participate in their religion. They were commanded not to glean the edges of their field when they harvested so the poor could go out to the edges of the field and pick up grain to eat. They were commanded that they can't charge interest on a poor person if they take out a loan. They were told every seven years all debts were canceled. And in the year of Jubilee, slaves were released. And then if your neighbor was without work, the person you were supposed to hire them. God has an incredible heart for the poor and the needy. And if you don't reflect that, it indicates that you have not had a second birth. You look at verse 18 through 20. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So if you can't point to works, if you can't point to a changed life, if you can't point to your behavior as an indication of your salvation, what do you point to? You point to your doctrine. You point to your orthodoxy. You point to the things that you supposedly believe. But that isn't enough. Head knowledge isn't enough. Academic wisdom isn't enough. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 29. And as Christ was traveling in his ministry, when he came to the other side of the country of the Gardenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way, and they cried out, saying, What business do we have each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This is the same title that Peter gives to Christ And Christ specifically tells him that the Holy Spirit has informed you of this and commends Peter for understanding that that's who Jesus is because people were saying, oh, maybe he's John the Baptist, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's another one of the prophets. We're not really sure. But you know who knows exactly who he is? Those demons know exactly who he is. Their orthodoxy is perfect. The problem is, is they do not submit to him. They, are not, they do not fall under his authority. They are in conflict with him directly. And yet, so we can see certainly that orthodoxy is insufficient for salvation. So what are some additional proofs that James goes through in his book, in this epistle? So last week and the week before, we looked at how do we respond to trials as being an indication of salvation and sanctification? Who do we blame in temptation? Do we blame God or do we rightly blame ourselves and our fallen flesh? How do we respond to challenging parts of the word? Do we just not read certain parts of God's word? Do we avoid going to services that we know will be challenging? Do we just not open it up at all? How do we treat God's image bearers? Do we treat them equally? Do we engage in favoritism, racism, sexism, genderism, whatever? How do we talk to one another? Do we treat each other and speak to each other with love and compassion? What kind of wisdom do we follow in our lives? Earthly wisdom or godly wisdom? Do we just talk a good Christian game or are we doers and not just hearers of the word? And how do we act in our business dealings? Do we uh, follow God's word when we 
go to church, but then as soon as Monday rolls around, it's time to follow the worldly wisdom. The, the two that I look at want to look at today and kind of expand on is the question of submission or humility. Do we submit to God? And then lastly, do we seek God's will for our lives? So first of all, the concept of submission or humility. So if you look with me in James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Make your way there. But he gives greater grace, and therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So after a series of proofs in the first three chapters, full three chapters of James, James stops and gives this invitation, this altar call. Come clean, cleanse your hands, repent, rededicate yourselves. And the focus of that is humility. You look at verse 6, 7, and 10, and that is the central concept of this set of verses, humility. You look at Micah 6, 8, you know, this is not something that is only relegated to the New Testament. Humility is important throughout the Bible, and I'll explain why in a second. So Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So why is humility equated with salvation? Because humility is required for us to understand our position in relation to that of God. To understand that we are broken, that we are sinful, that we miss the mark constantly, that our focus is to evil so often, and we are in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus, that Savior is the Christ, and we cannot save ourselves. I've rightly heard arrogance and pride being called God-repellent. And that is absolutely what it is. It will keep God away from you and you away from God the more that you puff yourself up. So let's go back to James and walk through this, starting in verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So this is an active submission. This isn't passive. This isn't relaxed. This isn't lying back and letting God do all of the work. But this is to come under God's authority, to owe allegiance to God. It's also a military term in the original language, to align in ranks, something that comes easy to my mind. Come align in ranks, under an authority. This is also a concept of the being subject to powers that be, to government, or children to parents, Servants to masters. And a good example of this concept not being passive is Saul on the road to Damascus before he became Paul, before God gave him that new new name. In Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 7. Leave your finger in James, we're coming back. So as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, 
and it would be told to you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. So Saul, who became Paul, was given a command by the Lord, and he obeyed. He didn't really know what was going to happen. Well, he didn't know what was going to happen. But he obeyed. He actively submitted to God's command. In contrast, the majority of Israel did not. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 3. For knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, insert legalism, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So they did not come under submission. They did not submit themselves to God. They sought their own way to build their own righteousness. Then further along in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So resist, this is the corollary, this is the flip side of submission. So if you are with God, you will be opposed to the devil. There's no middle ground, there's no Switzerland, there's no neutral countries. You're either with God or you're against God. And again, military mind, I like to think of, all right, we are born, we are born into the devil's kingdom. We are born into the world, which is the devil's. He owns that. And we change camps. When we repent, repentance is the concept of being on a journey and you're headed one direction and you turn around and you go the opposite direction. It's a change of life followed by a change of thought and a change of belief followed by a change of behavior. And so you're in the devil's camp and you sneak across no man's land and you enter into God's camp. And now you're over here on the other side. And you are to be at his mission and working on his timetable and for him and his will. And you say, well, wait a second, Perry. Is it really that diametrically opposed? Absolutely. You just have to look a little bit earlier in James, James chapter 4, verse 4. Just skip up three, three verses here. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if you're a friend of the world, if the things of the world are the things that you embrace, you are absolutely an enmity, an enemy of God. God is our new Lord and Master, and we are to be about his business and his mission. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is the concept of priestly worship, going into God's presence. So obviously, In the Old Testament, for those of you who are familiar with it and the way that it was done, the worship in the temple was done, there was one specific spot in the temple called the Holy of Holies, and that's where God's presence, God's Shekinah glory dwelled. Wealth, whichever. And then priests, the high priest, only one, could only enter one day a year and only covered by the sacrifice of blood blood sacrifice of a perfect, unspotted lamb. And all of that points toward Christ. And in the New Testament, now following the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection, we have a great high priest who stands between us and God. He is the one that we can speak to, and then we can go directly to God. We don't have to wait for the priest. We don't have to wait until the the Holy of Holies. We don't have to go to the temple. 
We can pray wherever we are and God is there and he will hear us. We are to draw near to him. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Me too. Cleanse my hands. I'm a sinner. This is the priestly concept of washing or the word catharsis. So priests, before they would conduct their ritualistic sacrifices, again pointing to Christ, they would wash. And why your hands? Because these are symbols of action, right? We do things with our hands. This is what the focus is, the concept of action. God is faithful to cleanse us. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Continuing in verse 8, purify your hearts. So the heart is the seed, you know, the concept of an attitude. And obviously we start out with hearts that are desperately wicked and are made of stone. In the Old Testament, the concept of a heart of stone. And then God is going to give us a heart of flesh, a new heart, along with the new creation that we are post-salvation. And so we are to obey that new heart and to not follow our flesh. All right, verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. All right, Perry, that doesn't sound good. I don't, I like laughing. I don't want to mourn. I don't want to weep. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be in gloom. Gloom, those all sound negative. They're not, <laughs> sure. So be afflicted. They, they are they're negative, but they are for an incredibly positive purpose. We are to be miserable over our sin, and this conviction leads to repentance. It leads to salvation. It leads to eternal life with Christ. So the concept of godly sorrow, you look at 2 Corinthians 7.10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces only death. So it's better to go to the house of mourning to the house of feasting, as the writer of Ecclesiastes said in chapter 7, verse 2. So this concept of mourning and weeping is just to indicate that our whole bodies are part of this affliction. Mourn, just our spirit, our being, responds to the misery that we should have over our sin. And weeping, that's the bodily response, demonstrates genuine sorrow over our sin great example of this, of course, is Peter. After hearing the rooster crow when he denied Christ three times after Christ had been arrested, and he just goes and he weeps. He is just overcome with mourning, and he's afflicted over his sin that he abandoned Christ and even denied, even knowing him three times. All right, but wait a second, Perry. But laughter, everybody loves laughter. Laughter's great. I love to laugh. It's okay. This is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the laughter, uh, you know, wholesome laughter of a family gathered around a board game like, oh, (laughs) I got you. That's not what this is. This is the laughter of sinners enjoying leisure, indulging in all the pleasures of the flesh without regard of life, death, or sin, just True libertine indulgence, like we talked about at the beginning. And just, you know, to eat, drink, be merry. That's what this is. And we shouldn't respond to life that way. 
God has indicated specifically that we should not live in that manner. And that's what the whole book of James is about. So instead of that Pharisee that that Jesus observed, who prays, basically prays to himself in Luke chapter 18, he, you know, this is Perry's paraphrase here, but you know, he said, hey, I'm great. Thanks, Lord, for making me so good. And you know, I'm awesome. And I tithe and do all this awesome stuff. Thanks. Thanks that I'm not like this guy over here, this tax collector. And then in Luke chapter 18, verse 13 through 14, we get some insight here on this tax collector. But the tax collector, standing at some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself, like the Pharisee, will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That is the picture of being afflicted over sin. Just coming to God in repentance, saying, I am nothing, you are perfect. Thank you, God, for the way that you have made for salvation. It leads us to verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Obviously, humility is the opposite of worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom tells you, puff yourself up. Tell everybody how great you are. Make everybody know who you are and what you can do. But we are sinners saved by grace through faith, and we are to be servants as Christ was a servant. All right, so that's the invitation from James. And once we've responded to that invitation through repentance or rededication, what's that next step? What do we do? Well, I'm glad you asked. We'll just keep reading in James. We are to seek God's will for our life. And there's four potential responses to God's will. And we'll read through those here in a second. Starting in verse 13. So chapter 4, verse 13. Hopefully you still have your finger in there. All right, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that vanishes, is there for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So there's four responses to God's will recorded here. The first one in verses 13 through 14 is the concept of practical atheism. So while you might believe in God, you might know God, you might be a believer, he doesn't really impact what you do day to day. You know, like, you know, I've got a five-year plan, ten-year plan, and Jesus is not my co-pilot, he's in the trunk. Uh, you know, and uh, occasionally I uh, take him out and we'll go to church, but uh, most of the time he stays there and I just ask him to uh, bless what I've decided I'm going to do. Uh, practically, he doesn't have any impact on my life. So obviously we shouldn't act in this way. God is in control and specifically here indicates we're a vapor. Now, we're, we're a mist that disappears. It's there for a little while and then is gone. So 
We are fragile and temporary on this earth. And obviously there's nothing else other than God that's worthy of our trust. Not riches, not another person, nothing. All right, I'm going to verse 16. I do know how to count, but I'm skipping verse 15 right now for a second. All right, verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So this is the potential second response. This is the self-theist. This is the individual who's made him or herself God. They boast. This is hollow bragging. This is a soapbox phony. This is a charlatan. Someone selling promises that they can't keep. Babylon is a great example of this. You look at Isaiah chapter 47. But a contemporary example of this is a poem that I hear over and over, especially in the military. It's very popular called Invictus. And the last verse is, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Negative. (laughs) To use a military term there. It's untrue. We are not the master of our fate. We are a vapor. Remember, we're a mist. It's temporarily here. We have no very, very little control over the things of our world and our, of our lives. The only question is whether or not we are going to obey and how we are going to react to those things that happen. So this is just pushing God out of the picture and saying, no, I am the God. And obviously that is not true. We'll look at verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So this is an individual who knows God's will, or at least knows some of God's will, because we can never know all of God's will. We're not God. And they are in blatant disobedience. They know what it is. They know it's supreme. They know they're supposed to obey it, and they miss the mark. You know, that's the concept that we talked about in Romans, you know, talking about the, the majority of the uh, nation of Israel. They're in blatant disobedience. So does this address sins of omission or commission? Yes. Wait a second, Perry. Those are big words at the end of this here. All right, so omission and commission. The concepts of commission. So if I know something is wrong, I know, if, I know it's against God's will and I do it. It's commission. But I know there's something that God wants me to do, has laid out for me to do, set out for me to do, and I don't do it. It's omission. Both of those are sin. Both of those are missing the mark of perfection, of holiness. Obviously, none of us can meet it perfectly, but for those of us who are in blatant disobedience who just say, hey, all those things that God wants me to do, I'm not doing those things. I know what it is. I'm not doing it. I'm turning away. I'm I'm going a different direction. And then there's the last possible response to God's will, and that's obedience. Look back at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. If the Lord wills. So God is our Savior and our Lord. We talked about that, the concept of submission, aligning in ranks. We are to follow him. We are accountable to him. There's this idea that we will live. That phrase just indicates that the very breath in our lungs, as we sometimes sing during worship, the very breath in our lungs is his. He controls all of this right here. This is just a 
earthbound spacesuit right here. That's it. So whatever we do, whether we do this or that, whatever we do, God is sovereign. So not only will we live, but everything that we do falls under his control. Ultimately, God is the architect. When you look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that verse 10, this concept of he has set out works for us to do. So he has set out plans for us. He is the architect. And I am just one of his builders. You are just one of his builders, if you know him this morning. He's laid out those things for us to do. And so the only question that is left to us is, are we going to obey? Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to gather and fellowship and just to learn more about you through your word. Thank you for the conviction, for the reproof, and for the encouragement that you've provided through your word and through this teaching. I pray that you continue to work in us, change us, sanctify us on on the road that you have us headed for, for glory. Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom and discernment that we might see the works that you have set out for us, Lord. Give us courage that we might do those works and we might do them in your strength. I pray that you give us strength in your Holy Spirit to go out from this place and to live in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.